One of the joys of getting to be your pastor is hearing your own stories about how you became a Christian. And uh, we could be here uh, between now and the end of the year, couldn't we? Uh, having the mic passed about and hearing just the various stories of how you came to know the Lord. Now, some of us are here and we grew up in a home saturated with Christ. And your story would be more like a Timothy in the New Testament about whom the Apostle Paul said his faith was inherited from his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. So Timothy's mother and grandmother are mentioned by name in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. And Paul commends them for sharing their faith with him. Some of you have stories like that. Others of you have stories uh, or conversions like that of C.S. Lewis, uh, whom God compelled to faith. Uh, Lewis, his spiritual journey took him from no belief in God whatsoever to belief in the existence of God to belief that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And if you were to read C.S. Lewis's spiritual autobiography titled Surprised by Joy, Surprised by Joy, Lewis confesses that he became a Christian kicking and screaming. He wrote, The prodigal son at least walked home on his feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? That was C.S. Lewis's own words. The heart, and then he says this, the heart, this is the guy who gave us the, the Chronicles of Narnia. All right. Struggling, resentful. And then Lewis says this, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. Wow, what a conversion. Still others of us have uh, conversion stories like that of the younger uh, brother in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. You, 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 you really rejected your family's faith uh, and you thought life would be better in the far off country. And then you got there and you realized that you never find in sin what you go in sin to find. And with your story and with your past and with your dark night of the soul, you still found the mercy of God. And he rescued you and you trusted in him and you confessed him and you were baptized and here you are. I mean, we're all here. We're all here. And we've all come from different places and different experiences, and yet here we are worshiping the same Jesus. And I, I mention all this because today's Advent reading tells us something beautiful and mysterious about how God reaches us and invites us to His Son. God initiates with an invitation, and then we respond to that invitation either by trusting him 
or not trusting him. Uh, but he, re- he, he makes the first move. The Apostle John says in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us, you see. And so the question today is, when God makes the invitation, how will we respond? How will we respond? And that takes us to what we read here, uh, what we heard read uh, earlier, and uh, we, we, about, about these responses to Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you have your Bibles, would you please meet me in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You'll find that on page 807 of your church Bibles. And this passage that I want us to study this morning concerns the various responses to Jesus. And uh, some responded in worship, as we shall see. Others responded with indifference, and still others responded with anxiety and hate. And all of the while we're reading these responses, it's as if Matthew is turning the pages of Scripture back to us saying, how will you respond? Here's how they responded. How will you respond to the news of the birth of Jesus Christ. I, I want to put a tag on this message, and here it is. Magi belong in our church. Magi belong in our church. These verses we'll see the life, uh, the, the introduction to, to the, these group of seekers called the Magi. And um, I want to just show you something very interesting about this slide here let's take a look at the very next picture with the title removed can we dim the lights just a little bit and so you know as i'm thinking about what to put on the screen for us um i i'm look, thinking about all the different images of magi that there have been in art and i i i was conscious because I didn't want to put some magi up there who looked like they were born in Switzerland. And so, so this is what I found. This is what I found. This is the earliest known portrayal of the magi uh, in, in history. This is, uh, if you go to Rome, at the catacombs of Priscilla. Uh, you will find this image over the archway just before you're about to enter a a chapel. And it's a third century image of the Magi. And I just wanted to share that with you. So, there. (laughs) We see the Magi here in verses 1 and 2 of our text. Our story begins after Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, when Herod the Great ruled Judea. More on him later. There were visitors. Matthew writes, Behold, 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 wise men or magi from the east came. Now, that word behold is an important word. It's not just a religious ornamental word. It's not just there as uh, icing. Uh, Matthew is signaling to his original audience, Behold, you're not going to believe this. 
You're not going to believe this. Behold, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, now just think about how this would have landed on the original audience, the first audience. As Christians steeped in Judaism, they're receiving the Gospel of Matthew as more than just a biography. They're receiving the Gospel of Matthew as a discipleship manual, a a gospel on spiritual formation. And they hear verse 1, and they think, Behold, Magi, and they're going, what? Idolaters, astrologers, Gentiles, they're outsiders. They don't belong here. What are they doing here? What are you doing in a place like this? Yeah. Well, verse 2 tells us. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. That's what they're doing on stage. Now, let's sit in this for just a moment. Let's observe the text. The very first spoken words in Matthew's gospel, the very first spoken words in Matthew's gospel are in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Take a look at the text. And those words are spoken from the Lord himself to Joseph. So God gets the first word in the gospel of Matthew. And since Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, God gets the first word in the New Testament. You follow me? Who gets the second word? The Magi. Matthew 2.2. 2. Gentiles, pagan astronomers, astrologers, seeking the king of the Jews. They get the same, so they get, they're the first humans to speak in Matthew's gospel and thus the New Testament. So, so, Matthew is trying to teach his original audience the reality of Christ's multi-ethnic kingdom church. The church for which King Jesus died, rose, and is returning resides from every tongue and tribe and nation and language. In the first advent, Jesus came for Israel. In the second advent, there will be one spirit-empowered ethic among a global multi-ethnic people of God. In Matthew chapter 2, Magi represents the nations as they come to Christ. In Matthew 28, Christ commissions the disciples as they go to the nations. In Matthew chapter 2, come and see becomes, in Matthew 28, go and tell. So Christ's church is on a global mission. And this is all the more remarkable because of who these Gentile magi were. See, see, our word magician comes from this word magi. Magi. Who were the magi? Well, they were kind of a cocktail of religious priests, academic professors, wizards, astronomers, astrologers, stargazers, all in one. See, in their world, there really wasn't that division between you know maybe what you might think of as science and and religion they were there's all it was all it was all so science religion politics it was all 
come together here as they served as political advisors to the kings of their respective nations. In Matthew chapter 2, magi are viewed favorably. In fact, this is really the only time in the Bible where magi are viewed favorably. Elsewhere in the, in the Bible, they're, they're kind of seen as tricksters or just kind of like you know, goofballs. or just They're just viewed negatively. I'm thinking of Exodus chapter 7. Uh, with, with Pharaoh and Moses. I'm thinking of Daniel chapter 4 with, with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm thinking of Acts chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer. So throughout the Bible, the Magi are kind of seen as, as tricksters or deceivers, but here they're viewed positively. In Matthew 2, Magi represents the kings of their respective nations. So they were servants of kings. From the east, from the east, oh, perhaps Babylonia or Persia. Uh, it's been argued that when Israel was exiled to Babylon, copies of the Hebrew Bible would have remained in that culture uh, because not everybody in Hebrew exile returned to Israel. So it's reasonable that over the centuries, Magi interacted with the Old Testament prophecies of a coming king, a coming Messiah, accompanied by a star, verse 3, for we saw his star. Um, I'd recommend a book by uh, Andreas Kostenberger and Alexander Stewart titled The First Days of Jesus. The First Days of Jesus. Uh, they write, astronomical events would certainly have led eastern astrologers to the conclusion that something unusual was happening in the world those in the ancient world commonly connected such astrological events with the birth of kings or other significant worldwide events for example uh, on the day of julius caesar's funeral there was a nova that appeared in the sky and after that, stars were associated with births and deaths of great leaders. Also, three extra-biblical extra historians, uh, Tacitus, Suetonius, and Josephus, speak of a rumor swirling around in the first century that world dominion would come from Judea. So, astronomical events in that world were signals that uh, leaders paid attention to. Now, this star, oh my goodness, we could geek out on that, right? We'll talk about the star, Pastor. I will for about a minute. Uh, because, so some think that the star was uh, a, a so, so basically, there's either natural explanation or, or supernatural explanation. That's, that's the short story here. On the natural side, uh, um, options would include a conjunction of planets, Saturn, Jupiter, and the constellation Pisces, timed in God's planning to happen such that it would clearly signal th these stargazers that something significant was about to happen, okay? So a conjunction of planets is a possibility. Uh, uh, there's a fascinating book titled The Christ Comet. 
the Christ comet. Write that down and you can Google it. If it gets slow in a few minutes, you can start reading it. Um, <laughs> but the author uh, makes a compelling argument for a, 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 a that the star was, in fact, a, a comet. So, so that's on the natural side. And the supernatural side is that, well, God just placed that star for that purpose. And if you can believe Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We should have no trouble believing that. Now, of all of these options, I can confidently say, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I really don't know. I do know that God is merciful in speaking a language that folks outside Israel could connect with, you see. And I think part of that is what's going on here. To me, an even more important question is not how did it get there, but why is it there? Why is it there? Think. These magi are pagan specialists in the occult. They're professionals in astrology and magic and divination. They're blatant violators of that which the Hebrew Scriptures strictly forbid. And yet, here they are. Here they are. So, so, stay with me here. This is what historians would call the criterion of embarrassment. The criterion of embarrassment. In other words, if Matthew were making this up and wanted you to believe it, he would never have written something as offensive as pagan astrologers doing what the Old Testament clearly forbid. I mean, so wh why would Matthew include this point in his gospel unless it had actually happened? So here's the takeaway. Here's the takeaway. True worshipers often come from faraway places. True worshipers often come from faraway places. And therefore, we should beware of writing off the very people that God wants to reach. We should beware of having a narrower vision of who can come to Jesus than God does. We should beware of underestimating the spiritual potential of people we deem as unlikely converts. Behold, God is wooing worshipers from among the priestly caste of pagan religion. Matthew goes, check it out. Astrologers in Bethlehem sorcerers in search of the Savior, wizards wanting to worship, Gandalf and Dumbledore have come to adore Christ the Lord. Wow! God is drawing them to His Son, and God wants to draw you to His Son as well. See? Oh, had God not put that star in the sky and spoken their language, they wouldn't have come, but he did, and they did. Isn't God good? No one is beyond the reach of God's hand. After all, we're here. So if you're here and you have no church background, well, you've come to the right place. Yeah. Yeah, we need more magi in this church. True worshipers often come from faraway places. Well, let's keep reading. 
These magi show up. And when King Herod heard this, verse 3, he was troubled. Troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Why was he troubled? Well, their arrival would have been a formidable sight. Rather than three lone travelers on their camels, what likely arrived with the Magi's coming was an entourage. Dignitaries mounted on Persian steeds and under armed guard. And remember, at that time, Persia and Babylonia were under the jurisdiction of Rome's rival, the Parthian Empire, to the east, you see. No wonder Herod became attentive and disturbed. We've come to see the king who was born king of the Jews. And Herod's thinking, I thought I was the king of the Jews. And actually, Herod was a puppet king. He was a puppet king of Augustus Caesar. Herod, uh, so Herod was, Herod wasn't even Hebrew. Put that in your notes. He was ethnically Arab, politically Roman, culturally Greek, and at the surface level, religiously Jewish. So he's kind of a little bit of everything. He wore many faces to appease many audiences. And that's how he stayed in power. A gifted orator, excellent at hand-to-hand combat. He was brilliant. He was cunning. He was lucky. He built massive construction works, including the harbor at Caesarea, uh, Masada there in Israel, uh, the, the temple, Herod's temple. He, Herod was the ultimate survivor. He outwitted, outplayed, and outlasted his enemies. And if there was a whiff of rebellion, he retaliated. He had ten wives. His offspring fought each other. He executed one of his wives and two of his sons because he just was suspicious of their treason. In fact, Augustus Caesar once quipped that it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was to be his son. And now you know why verse 3 says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Circle the word troubled. Meaning that he had, he had this acute emotional turbulence. He was shaken to the core. See, by now he's old. He's uh, ruled over 30 years. He's losing his grip. He's concerned about his legacy. And, and he's reacting because the Magi have come seeking one born king of the Jews. He was not born king. He was appointed king by Augustus. And the scripture says that all Jerusalem was troubled with him. So Herod was troubled, and it says that Jerusalem was troubled. Why would Jerusalem be troubled? Because they knew Herod. And they knew that if Herod was troubled, somebody's going to die. And when the boss isn't happy, no one is. And so Herod gathers his religious scholars to tell him about God's anointed one in the Hebrew Scriptures. So, <laughs> oh my goodness. So here you have 
a non-Hebrew king of the Jews who is biblically illiterate. And he requires religious scholars to show them Micah. The king would be born in Bethlehem, David's hometown, five miles away. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the true shepherd is, the true shepherd is not going to be this ruthless, paranoid tyrant. It's going to be a shepherd giving guidance and pastoral care and compassion. And, and so what Israel's kings had failed to do, the Messiah will now do perfectly. Now, let me just pause here because there's another principle coming out of these verses and it's this, it's this. A star will only get you so far. You need the Bible. Okay. You need the Bible. So, see, the, the Magi went to Jerusalem, the capital, because that's where they assumed the king of the Jews would be born. Why did they, why did they go? They, they went first to Jerusalem. Why? Because, well, Jerusalem's the capital. That's where you would expect to find a king, there at the capital. But they needed the word of God to reveal to them the exact location. You see what's going on here? So, so they needed more than general revelation. They needed special revelation. This book is special revelation. General revelation told the Magi that a child had been born. Special revelation was needed to tell them where the child was born. General revelation brought them to Jerusalem. Special revelation guided them to Bethlehem. General revelation speaks of God's creative power. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. That's general revelation, so says the psalmist. Special revelation speaks of God's redemptive power. General revelation teaches us that God fashioned the heavens and the earth. Special revelation teaches that God the Savior came from heaven to earth for our sins. Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty five, Matthew eleven twenty five, express this very important theme, where Jesus says, "I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to infants." So special revelation will be received and acted on by the humble. And so, apart from God's revealing work. We're just as foolish and lost as Herod. Who then secretly summoned the Magi and feigned interest in worshiping this king. Verse 7, he summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And then sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> yeah. Think about it. Think about it. Think about it. He who was closest 
to Israel's faith was in fact furthest from Israel's God. Bethlehem was only about five miles from Jerusalem. That's a two-hour walk, five miles. It was an easy journey on a good road, five miles. And none of the scribes bothered to check it out. Five miles. Five miles from the Messiah. Five miles from mercy. Five miles from eternal life. They were just too busy or too indifferent. They who claimed to know the word neglected to act on the word. They knew it, but they weren't willing to act on it. And one scholar calls this a strange indifference. They were strangely indifferent. Church family, it's possible to learn a great deal of Bible content and still miss the truth of God's word. In Matthew chapter 2, all the characters had the same information. Everybody was aware that the child was born in Bethlehem. All had been told who the child was. But you've got the same information, but you've got different responses. Herod wanted him dead. The, the scribes and the religious and the pastor types were just indifferent. But the magi <laughs> wanted, to, wanted to worship what will you do with Jesus? What's more important than what they did with Jesus was what will you do with Jesus? How will you respond to Jesus? Who are you in this account? Are you with Herod? Are you one of the scribes, the magi? I think what Matthew's trying to tell us is that you will never worship the king as long as you want to be king. And you cannot live for God when you keep thinking you're God. And the Magi, they sought a better, wiser way. And when they got there, oh my, oh glory, verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Can you imagine that? The Holy Family being there when these mysterious guests in this little town show up. And they fell and they worshiped that little boy. Not an ordinary boy. This little boy is God in the flesh. Christ the Lord, the true king of Israel. Verse 11. They saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshiped him. And they humbly offer these regal gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And maybe that's why tradition points to three. That... Each had their own gift. Unwittingly, though, they financed Jesus' family while they were refugees in Egypt. See, that's what these gifts do. And verse 12 says, Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Hmm. I hear a double meaning in that verse, don't you? In one sense, for their own safety, God led them home through another way. Because you know what Herod's going to do here in verses 16 and following. My goodness. But in a spiritual sense, they had become followers of another way. The way. The way and the truth 
and the life. And I guess what I'd like to say as we get to the end of this paragraph is Jesus is always worth the trip no matter how long the trip. Always, always, always. It, you know, it was about a thousand miles for those magi to get to Jesus. Can you imagine the different barriers they had to cross to get to Christ? There was the geographic barrier. There's the linguistic barrier. There's the ethnic barrier. Not to speak of a paranoid king and some apathetic religious leaders. You know what? If magi could get to him, you can get to him. He's right here right now inviting you about every Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning, we pray, 7 a.m., oh God, be awakening people who did not think they were going to come to church when they went to sleep last night. And here you are. Huh? The Lord has answered our prayers. You're here. I'm here. We're here. It's because God has invited you to his son. How will you respond? These, these verses teach us that the least likely people responded well. And the people that we thought would respond didn't. The Apostle John says he came to his own and his own people received him not. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But of God. So that phrase, King of the Jews, spoken by the Magi in our text today, that phrase, King of the Jews, appears in Matthew's Gospel 18 times. 18 times. And we read it once here in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. And then that phrase, King of the Jews, does not appear again until Jesus' crucifixion, where it appears 17 times. So the first time we hear the phrase, it's spoken by those who came to worship. And all the other times, at the conclusion of Matthew's gospel, it's spoken by those who came to crucify him. I think Matthew's really trying to get us to make a decision here. How will we respond to the king of the Jews? How are we, are we with Herod? Are we with uh, the, the, the religious scribes and priests? Or are we with the Magi? Come home, Matthew says. Come home. So her name was Maria. And her husband had died when uh, their daughter, Christina, was an infant. And Maria, oh, she was determined. Maria stubbornly refused opportunities to remarry, and she set out to raise her young daughter. And 15 years later, the worst years were over. Maria's salary was meager, and it afforded few luxuries, but it was reliable, and it provided food and clothing. And now Christina was old enough to get a job to help out. Some people say that Christina got her independence from her mother. And she recoiled at the idea of marrying young and raising a family. 
And it's not that uh, Christina couldn't have had her pick of um, bows. Her beauty kept a steady stream of prospects at her door. She had this infectious way of throwing her head back and filling the room with laughter. And she also had that rare magic that just makes uh, a person feel like they're royalty just by being near. But it was her spirited curiosity that made her keep all of the fellows at arm's length. And she, she often told her mother, oh, I'd like to go to the city. I, I want to trade my dusty neighborhood job in for the exciting avenues of city life. And that thought horrified Maria. And Maria was always quick to remind her daughter Christina of the harshness of the streets. She'd say, people don't know you there. Jobs are scarce. Life is cruel. If you went there, what would you do for a living? And Maria knew exactly what Christina would do for a living. And that's why her heart broke when one morning she found her daughter's bed empty. Maria knew immediately where her daughter had gone. And she also knew immediately what she must do to find her. And she quickly threw some clothes in a bag and gathered up all her money and she ran out of the house. And on her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore to get one last thing, pictures. She sat in the photograph booth and closed the curtain and she spent all of the money she had on pictures of herself. And with her purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew Christina had no way of earning money, and she also knew that when pride meets hunger, a person will do the unthinkable. So she began searching in bars and hotels and nightclubs, any places with streetwalkers or prostitutes, and she went to them all. And at each place, she left her picture taped on a bathroom mirror, tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a corner phone booth, and on the back of each photo, she wrote a note. And when the money in the pictures ran out, Maria had to go home. And her weary face wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. A few weeks later, Young Christina descended the hotel stairs. She was exhausted. Circles under eyes that no longer danced. Eyes that spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. And a thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for a secure pallet. And yet the little village, her little hometown, was in too many ways too far away. But she reached the bottom of the stairs. And that's when her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again. And there, there in the lobby mirror, at the corner at the bottom, was a picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and she removed that small photo. And that's when she saw the note written on the back which was this compelling invitation. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, 
It doesn't matter. Come home. Come home. And she did. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, I sense that you're just saying that to us right here, right now. You're inviting us to come, to come home. Come to the house where the child lives. Jesus, Jesus. Thank you for receiving us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your mercy. Your mercies are new every morning. We love you. We thank you. Jesus, you are our Christmas. In your name we pray and the church said,